0: Our world is full of unhappy and dissatisfied people. For this reason, people everywhere are looking for answers to the emptiness they feel inside. People will try anything in hopes that it might bring some sort of satisfaction or happiness. And this probably explains why there's so much divorce and suicide, thoughts of suicide, Drug dependency, alcohol abuse, criminal behavior, prostitution, sexual impurity, depression, pornography, eating disorders. And and well, you get the idea, we are a messed up people. So what is the solution? Is it materialism and wealth, pleasure and enjoyment, power, prestige, religion? Wisdom and education. Everybody has an answer. But we always have to remember the Bible tells us there is a way that seems right to a person. But in the end it produces death. There is an answer to the eternal question, how do I find happiness and satisfaction in life? Jesus gives us that answer. Open your Bible to John chapter 10. And verse 10. It's page 819 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Jesus says, The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. Title of the message this morning is "Living an Abundant Life." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. Father, you are wonderful and amazing and awesome. You are loving and kind and long-suffering. You are caring. You are almighty, you are all-knowing, and you are all-good. Father, we, we live in a world that seeks to make us dissatisfied. We live in a world that offers us a, a myriad of pleasures and said, this is the way. Father, in the end, none of those things satisfy the thirst that we have, the desires that we have. Only Jesus can give us what we truly need in our hearts and in our souls and in our lives. Father, today as we look at this passage and what it means and what it's like to have an abundant life, help us to have open hearts and open minds to receive your word. Help us have surrendered spirits to take it and apply it to our lives. Help us, Father, to lay aside distractions, concerns, and burdens that we've brought. And let us focus these next few minutes just upon what you have to say to us from your word. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to come and speak to us to make your word living and active. Father, to deal with us, your dearly beloved children, in the ways that we need to be dealt with. Father, there are likely some today that are discouraged. Use this time to encourage them. There are likely some that are weak and use this time to strengthen them. There are likely some that are sliding back in their relationship with you. Use this time to restore them. There are likely some that have never known Jesus Christ as their Savior. Use this time to save them. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Let him give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. Be glorified in not only what happens in here today, but in what happens because of it tomorrow. Let us be a people whose lives shine brightly for Jesus everywhere we go. Let us live for You in such a way that people ask us the hope that we have within us and give us the boldness to just tell them about the Jesus who has saved us and has been so good. We love You. We want Your will to be done in our lives today. We ask all of this because of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus said he came to give life life more abundantly. That is a That is a capturing thought. For weeks this passage has been on my mind as I tried to to imagine what is it to live an abundant life? What does it mean exactly? So I looked at different translations to see how they have translated the idea of life and life more abundantly. The New Living Translation, Jesus said, My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. The Amplified Bible says, I came that they may, ha- they may have and enjoy life and have it in abundance to the full till it overflows. And perhaps my favorite is again the message Paraphrase, I came so they could have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Now, those are some exciting pictures, aren't they? A, an abundant life, a life that is rich and satisfying, a life that overflows with the goodness of God. A life that is better than we ever dreamed of having. That is the kind of life that Jesus came to give us. But what exactly does that mean? Well, in an effort to understand what it meant, I started looking at what it couldn't mean. Right? For instance, it can't mean have a problem-free life. I've heard some explain that the idea of a life and all of its abundance would mean that Jesus came to make sure that we never had any problems in our life. And that sounds great. But the Bible makes it difficult to say that's what the Bible means. Take the Apostle Paul, for instance. If there was ever a guy that lived for Jesus, it was Paul. And yet, Paul's life was incredibly difficult. Beatings, prisonments, persecutions, all kinds of difficulties despite living for Jesus. In fact... I think if you were to study Paul's life, you could make the case that the majority of the problems he faced were not in spite of serving Jesus, but because he served Jesus. I mean, when Paul was beaten, it wasn't because they just picked a guy at random to beat. It was because Paul had preached about Jesus and they didn't like it, so they beat him. So it can't mean that That it's a problem-free life. Also, it can't mean that it's a life just filled with material wealth and goods. I've also heard it explained that, that it would be impossible to have an abundant life, a rich and satisfying life, unless I was able to buy just everything my little heart desired. And yet again, Scripture makes that a difficult way to apply this. As Jesus himself said, he had nowhere to lay his head. The Apostle Paul, again, often had to go without food because he didn't have enough to buy his his bare necessities. In fact, at one point, he said, "I, I know how to abound and I know how to suffer lack. Therefore, I've learned to be content in whatever place I am. Paul was content with an abundant life when he had a bunch and when he had none. So it can't mean that. And then I've heard people say that it's just an eternal life. That, right, it can't mean just eternal life. Many of my Baptist brethren want to say that, that an abundant life is the hope of heaven. Salvation. And, and knowing that one day we'll go to be with Jesus. But that alone defines an abundant life. But as we look at these words. Rich and satisfying. Overflowing until it's better than we ever dreamed of. I mean, certainly heaven would have to be a part of that, but doesn't all of that sound like it means something here and now for our lives? I mean, to me, it has to mean something in this life. So what does it mean to have an abundant life, a rich and satisfying life that overflows the goodness of God till it's better than we could have ever dreamed of? And I began to to think about that. And it has to be wrapped up in all of the things that Jesus gives us and does for us. Things that that benefit us in the here and the now, but also give us hope about the world to come. So let me quickly just, just mention a few of the promises, the benefits, the blessings that are ours as believers in Jesus Christ right now. Romans 8.1 There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. I mean, have you ever really thought about that idea? As a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not walking a tightrope over hell. You're, you're not just hoping that you get everything right every single day, because if you don't, oh, you fall off into the fires of hell. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you will never face the condemnation of an unbeliever. As a believer in Jesus Christ, hell cannot be your home. Ever. No believer ever goes to hell. And it's not just because we're perfect. Right? In fact, it's not ever because we're perfect. There is no condemnation for us because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He is the one that has freed us from condemnation. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. As believers in Jesus Christ, we can have... A peace that passes all understanding. We can have a peace that's greater than the circumstances we face in our lives. We can have a peace that as we're sitting in jail, being beaten for, a, for something we did not do, that we can sing and praise God at midnight. That's the kind of peace that we can have. It's a peace that's not dependent on the economy or the election. Or anything else. It is a peace that is a gift to us by Jesus Christ. That no one can take. Now we can lay it aside. And we can lose it. The world cannot take what Jesus has given us. A a peace that passes understanding. Romans says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who, who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. believers in Jesus Christ, everything in our lives can be used for our good. Anything that happens can be used for our ultimate good. Now, again, important to understand what is our ultimate good. According to the Bible... Is that we would be like Jesus. Again, our ultimate good is not worldly wealth or a problem-free life. Our ultimate good is Christ-likeness now. And what I like about the Romans passage here is that the immediate context is that of suffering. The promise isn't when good things come into your life, they will help you to be like Jesus. The promise is everything that comes into our life can be used to help us be like Jesus. But not only that, it's God who uses these things. So, God is always actively at work in the life of a believer. We are not just passively going through life with random things just happening and God reacting. God is actively involved in every moment of our lives. Tomorrow, you're going to go out in a day and your God is going to be actively involved in every issue, every thing, every circumstance that comes into your life tomorrow. Your God is going to be actively involved in that. And His goal in being involved is to bring glory to His name by helping you become like Jesus. Paul says also in Ephesians, That by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I love this passage. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we are saved to serve. Now, being the idea that we're saved to serve, it can, for some, seem a burden great just one more thing to add to my life there's something else i'm supposed to do but if that is our mindset to being saved to serve we're really not understanding what this means we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good things that god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them i want you to to get the magnitude of what paul's saying here before the world began god knew you He knew where you'd be born. He knew when you'd be born. He knew to whom you'd be born. He knew what your personality would be like. He knew what your strengths would be and what your weaknesses would be. And the God of the universe, the one who spoke the world into existence, the one who who has sustains all things by the word of his might, he looked at you and he planned something for you to do. I mean, that is awesome. I remember when I understood that. I come from a podunk town near Ada, Oklahoma. which is a I come from a suburb of a podunk town. That's how podunk the town I come from is. I, I live literally in Pickett Center. Do you know why it's Pickett Center? Because on this side of us is Pickett. On this side of us is Center. And we live in between it, Pickett Center. The only reason people go to Pickett Center is to drive down a dirt road. And look at a row of fence posts that have catfish heads on them. That was the only cool thing in the town I grew up in. God was a big catfisher. And he would cut off the heads and put them on a fence post. For about a mile you could watch catfish heads decay in various stages. It was the only thing in the town I grew up in. And and God looked down at me. Pickett Center, Oklahoma. He so said, There is something I have for you to do. Ha! Oh, that is awesome. And God looked down at Guyman and at Woodward and at Texhoma and at Goodwell and Spearman and everywhere, and He looked at you and He said, I have something for you to do. How awesome is that? The great and the awesome God of the universe chose to do something through you in this world. It's amazing. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I have a lot of things that we've looked at to look at this morning, so I hope we can get through it before two o'clock. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Listen, this is something you got to get a hold of. You are a victor in Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we don't struggle the world, the flesh and the devil. We do. But we don't struggle as poor, pitiful, wretched, and powerless. How many times have you heard the Christian life described in that way? We're just trying to get through. Bless God, the world's about to kill us all and destroy the church. I whew, hope we can make it. Church, the Christians, we're just we're so powerless in the world that we live in. That's not the picture the Bible paints. The Bible doesn't paint the picture of a powerless church. It paints the picture of a victorious church. Victorious through Jesus. We we struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil constantly. Don't, Don't get me wrong. But we are not fighting from a position of weakness. We fight from a position of power. We aren't losers fighting to win. We are victors. That's it. We fight from a position of victory in Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors. Always. How would that change your mindset in what you deal with tomorrow? If when the trouble happened, when the temptation occurred, rather than say, oh, woe is me, you said, I am a victor and I will conquer. That's who we are. That's who we're supposed to be. We are victors. And because we're victors in Jesus, we should be immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has won the victory. We get to be a part of that. And so anything and everything we do in Jesus' name is eternally significant. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we never waste our lives serving Jesus. I mean, down to the Bible talks about giving a cup of cold water to someone in Jesus' name. It's never a waste. It's always eternally significant. Our Savior always sees. We will always be rewarded. It always matters. Where else, except through Jesus, can you say, I know that everything I do matters. Tomorrow, you can go out and you can live in such a way that whether you're teaching or policing or accounting or inputting numbers or whatever you're doing. It is eternally significant because who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That is an amazing, wonderful concept. I I can do all things through Christ. As believers, if Jesus wants us to do it, Jesus will empower us to do it. I mean, that's not something that we, that's not a kid's Bible verse that we tell them so they don't quit on their homework. That is for us. If Jesus has called me to it, Jesus will empower me to do it. Regardless of what it is. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To to reckon ourselves dead to sin means that we understand that sin has no hold on us any longer. Right? Not Not that it doesn't pull, but that we're not enslaved to it. We're dead to its power. As a believer, you and I do not have to give in to sin's temptations and sin's pull. Sin's power has been defeated and destroyed by Jesus Christ. And we can say, no thank you. And we can live for Jesus. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And I want to stop there because that's a good thing. What's the purpose of what he's saying? That we may not sin. But if we stop there, we miss the goodness of it all. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, I want you to think about that. When is Jesus your advocate with the Father? When you sin. As a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus is always on your side. So, tomorrow, you may lose your struggle with your sinful nature and you may act in ways that are inappropriate and sinful, and we need to deal with that. But in that moment, Jesus Christ is still on your side. Jesus does not pick who's on his team based upon how good we perform. Jesus has already performed perfectly, he doesn't need us to be great. He just needs us to trust in him. Jesus Christ will always be on your side as a believer. The devil doesn't want you to know that. The devil wants you to feel condemnation for your sin and your struggles and your failures. Jesus wants you to know he is always on your side. There will never be a time as a believer when Jesus is not on your side. How great is that? How great is our Savior? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Many people wrestle with the past, who they were in days gone by, and they feel so bad about the mistakes that they've made. But the reality is none of that counts anymore to Jesus. Our past has been taken away. There was a pastor I I sort of knew and I had met and I listened to him preach, and his name was Eddie Hicks. And Eddie Hicks was a bad guy before he got saved. He was a drug dealer and he was a pimp. And when someone owed Eddie Hicks money, he would get them in a car going 60 miles an hour and he would kick them out of it to encourage them to find a way to pay him the money. Then Eddie got arrested and he went to prison and he got saved. And when Eddie got saved, he got legitimately, gloriously born again and he was a different person. And when he came out, he started a ministry reaching out to pimps, to prostitutes, and to addicts. And he, during the course of his life, he he housed and, and helped thousands, thousands of, of addicts, pimps, and prostitutes. Helped them get out of the life to come to know Jesus, to get jobs, to have families. It, it was just amazing what the Lord did through his ministry. And he said periodically people from the past would would bring up who he was. And he said he would tell them, and he, he had his prison number, and he would say, that was, that was 02543114. I'm not that guy anymore. He was a new creation. The past was gone. It's the same with us. Regardless of what we were before we met Jesus, all of that is, is gone. We are entirely new creations. Our past, whether good or bad, it's not a, a definer of who we are now. We cannot. We don't have to let our past weigh us down and hold us back. Jesus no longer cares about those things. We are a new creation. And then all that we have that we've talked about to this point, all of that is just a foretaste of what is to come. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place. If I go to prepare a place, I'll come and get you and take you to where I am. See, we have an awful lot that's good right now. But the good that we have now really is just a, it's the appetizer. The best is is yet to come. And and there's more. We, We couldn't take today and just talk about all of that. But I mean, you think about what we've talked about that is an abundant life to have all of those things be true of us. That is an an overflowing life to live as if those things were true. To experience that in our day to day lives. And that is the life that Jesus came to give us. That he intends for each and every one of us to have. But the reality is we don't all live. That kind of a life. And part of the reason we don't live that kind of a life is because we have an enemy. Jesus said, The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, to destroy. You see, the enemy, he wants to undo everything that Jesus has done. Where we are free from condemnation, he wants us to feel condemnation. Where we are not the same anymore, he wants us to focus on who we were. In the past, where Jesus is our advocate, He wants us to believe that Jesus is now angry at us. Where we are safe in the arms of Jesus, the enemy wants us to believe we are at any moment about to fall into the fires of hell in the judgment and the wrath of Almighty God. Where we are victors through Christ and more than conquerors, He wants us to feel poor, powerless, pitiful, and wretched. He wants to steal, to kill, to destroy the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. And we are warned about our enemy in a couple of places. Paul said that we are to be sober or to be clear thinking. We're to be vigilant, to be very careful because our adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That is a powerful passage to meditate on. One thing to understand is we have, there is a an unseen spiritual world that goes on around us. And in this unseen spiritual world, there is a force of evil who hates you. And who hates me. And he wants to steal, kill, or destroy. He wants to devour. He is always walking around, looking for just the right time and for just the right prey. And when the time is right, and when he can, he will pounce and do all that he can to destroy. But not only that, he's sneaky. We are to put on the armor of God that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. But the devil isn't going to come and say, "I'm the devil, here to destroy your life." We would say, "No, thank you to that. he's, he's wiles is his tricks, his schemes, and his schemes all have one goal: to steal, kill and destroy, to make it so that he can devour. Us. Now, Satan, I guess typically, doesn't physically devour people. There aren't many people who are demonically eaten. But he can still steal, kill and destroy. He can steal the rich and satisfying life that Jesus came to give us. He can destroy our peace and destroy our opportunity at having a life that's better than we ever imagined. He can absolutely devour our hope and keep us from experiencing an abundant life that Jesus wants us to have. But an important thing to understand is Satan cannot do any of this directly to you and I as believers. He cannot take away what Jesus has given to us. Satan is nowhere near Jesus' equal Instead, what He has to do is He has to steal, kill, and destroy through secondary means. And what I mean is, He likes to do other things to get us to lay aside the abundant life and to follow after Him instead. And to understand how He does that, we have to understand one of the names for Satan in Scripture is the tempter. Satan comes to tempt us. And if he can tempt us to sin, he can convince us to... he can. Convince us to lay aside the abundant life and to follow after Him. And then He can steal that out from underneath us. And in order to be able to effectively fight against this so that we can live the abundant life that Jesus wants us to have, we have to understand the four D's of temptation. First is desire. It's important to understand that temptation is an inside job. It always starts Within us, think about sin as having an inward and an outward pull. There is the object of our temptation that is an outward pull, but at the same time, there is something within us that wants to take part in that, and it is an inward pull. And when we see the temptation before us, there is a desire to do it. And that, to me, is a huge key to understanding how to fight temptation. Because no one wants to say, I like my temptations, do we? I like the sin that I give into. I mean, that's an awful, awful sentence to say. But let's be honest, isn't it true? We're not tempted by things we don't enjoy doing. But we deep down in our baser being we enjoy gossiping. We enjoy lusting. We enjoy being selfish. We enjoy being judgmental and hateful. We, we enjoy the sin we give in to. If there was not an inward desire, it would not be a temptation for us to do. So it starts with a desire to do it. But then desire, if we don't deal with it, it gives way to deception. Now, I'm not a fisherman. I don't like fishing. But I do know that the bait matters when you fish. Just throwing in a bare hook doesn't catch many fish. And you have to use the right bait for the right fish. Satan is like a master fisherman. If he just hung a hook out and said, hey, why don't you bite on that and let me destroy your life? We would say, no, thank you. Instead, he knows how to bait that hook with what we want. Again, he doesn't tempt you with what tempts me. He baits the hook specifically for us because he knows what desires will pull at us. He knows what desires we sadly want to give into. So he baits the hook. And where the deception comes in, if we're not careful, is we see the hook. And we say, I know it's dangerous. I know it's wrong. But I think I can nibble around the bait on the outside without actually biting on the hook. But or or we say i know that I, I know somebody i knew did this and it destroyed their lives but i'm smarter than them i i can do it without there being any consequences nobody will know what i'm doing see we we begin to deceive ourselves about it we think we will be the exception we think we can do it without consequences we think if we just stay along the outer edges we won't go too far and we can control The situation, we deceive ourselves. And deception, well, it leads to disobedience. Because once I've convinced myself I'm the exception, that I can handle it, that I'm not going to go too far. Well, I I do the deed. The battle, it really kind of starts in our minds. Because the desire, desire often begins here, we think about it. And the more I think about it, the more I want to do it, the greater the desire grows. And the greater the desire grows, the more convinced I am that this will be the last time. That no one will ever find out that I I can handle it unlike the others. And so we let desire, we give it way to deception, and then it takes the form of disobedience. We act on it. And disobedience isn't the end because there's a fourth D. Death. There are consequences for sin. Always. It's just the world that we live in. There, God has built the world in such a way that there is a spiritual law about sin. Do not be deceived for whatever a man sows that will he also reap. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. So we we all are gonna we're gonna harvest something from the life that we live. That's it's just all of us. The only question is what are we going to harvest? Are we going to harvest an abundant, rich, and satisfying life that overflows till it's better than we ever imagined? Or are we going to harvest corruption and death from the actions that we've taken? Because we're going to do one. Now the world is filled with choices. And and the choices we have, we can live in any way that we want to live. We can do anything that we want to do. God has given us a free will. And we can do just about anything that we want to do. So that's a choice that we have. But while we can choose our actions, we cannot choose the consequences for those actions. See, I can't choose to follow the path of the four D's and yet reap an abundant life. That's not a choice that's before me. If I choose to follow the path of the four D's, I have also chosen the consequences the loss of an abundant life to reap the death that follows. When I choose the actions, I choose the resulting consequences. And I liked it that Paul wrote, do not be deceived. Paul knows human nature and we are masters at self-deception. Because what we convince ourselves of, we are the exception to the rule. Certainly Scott, will reap what he sows. But but I no. I'll get away with it. I'll be the exception. God will overlook it with me. And what Paul writes to head that thinking off is don't be deceived. You will not be the exception. You will harvest what you plant just like everyone else. If we want, every believer can have an abundant, rich and satisfying life that overflows till it's better than we ever imagined. That is possible for each and every one of us. That is God's plan for each and every one of us. However, we have to choose that life. We have to choose that life by not following the path of the four D's. And so before us all, There is the the choice of the the four D's and and the path that goes there or we can choose the path of the abundant life. And in the end, the life you live is determined by the choices you make. And that is the, the central truth you've got to understand today. The life I live is largely determined by the choices I make. And we are a past the buck culture and nothing is ever our fault. My friend, understand. The life you live is determined by the choices you make. It is not your wife's fault. It is not your husband's fault. It's not your parents' fault, your neighbor's fault, your co-worker's fault, your kid's fault. Not even your in-law's fault. It is your fault. The life you live is determined by the choices you make. And if you want to live a rich, satisfying, abundant, overflowing life that's better than you can ever imagine, you can. If you choose Jesus and you choose to reject the four D's. Now, the life that Jesus has for us, this abundant life. It is different than what we would have imagined, probably, because when I was in my 20s, I had my life planned out. I knew what I was going to do. I knew how long I was going to serve in the army. I knew when I would retire. I knew where I would retire to and what I would do as a retired former soldier. And none of it involved being a husband and a father and a pastor in Guymon, Oklahoma, But yet that's where I find myself now. And it is almost the opposite in many ways of the life I had planned for myself. I can promise you the life God has given me as I have followed his path. It is far more abundant than the life I would have had on my own. I lived a measure of the life that I wanted on my own. It was nearly, not nearly as rich and satisfying, not nearly as overflowing with goodness. This life I have in Christ, it is by far better than I could have ever dreamed for myself. When you surrender your life to Jesus and begin to live the life he has for you, it may well be different than the life you have planned for yourself. But without hesitation, I can promise you it's better than the life you have planned for yourself. It is abundant, it is rich and satisfying and is overflowing with the goodness of God. And that is the life that Jesus wants for you if you would choose him today. Let's stand as our musicians come.